even if people aren't fully aware of what it is that they don't know or are missing, when you reveal it to them, when you show it to them, when they hear it, when they hear the songs, when they hear the stories, when they hear the voices that spoke them, when they see the faces that told them and, the, and that listened and so on and so forth, something it's it's something so deep that if I can't even say I can't even point to it or, or say what it is, yeah. And people just feel that it's something real, which is very rare nowadays. Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. I first heard the Irish folklore podcast Blurney Belladish, or Folklore Fragments, not more than a month ago. And within minutes of tuning in, I found myself grinning from ear to ear while walking down the street. Not only is the show's content fascinating and unique, its delivery is warm, intelligent, and sometimes hilarious. Almost before I had finished listening to that first episode, I had contacted the show's producers and asked them to indulge me with an interview. To my delight, I heard back from Johnny Dillon, an archivist at the National Folklore Collection at University College Dublin, where he records the show with his friend and colleague, Claire Dewan. My conversation with Johnny about his folklore work left few stones unturned, straying into the past, the future, and of course, the other world. So, um, it seems that you have the coolest job ever. Do you want to tell me about that? I'd be inclined to agree, I think, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I work in, in Ireland's National Folklore Collection, which is in University College Dublin now, in, in Dublin just outside the city, really, where it's been since 1971. But it houses, it's kind of one of, really it's one of the largest kind of collections of a sort in Europe, if not the world, really, of, of mm-hmm. kind of folkloric, ethnographic material. It's it, Basically, it's it's the National Folklore Collection carried over from the Irish Folklore Commission, which was established in 1935 in Ireland and was the first kind of, first government commissioned um, organisation really tasked with the, the job of collecting and and kind of saving Ireland's folklore as it's seen as its own mission really in many ways and to kind of preserve and document all aspects and areas of Irish folk tradition that were seen in many ways to be under threat and kind of um, you know, I suppose with the process of urbanization and modernization that was occurring in the country that this this there was a fear that many aspects of our traditional inheritance were being kind of uh, washed away so I mean that was the sentiment really that it carried on Manifest began to manifest in ways in the, in the 19th century in Europe and other places, but in Ireland, some of the figures who, who took it upon themselves to form this kind of organisation did so in the 1930s, the well, 1920s really. But but the Irish Folklore Commission was established in the 19, 1935, and so um, it was established by James Hamilton de Largy. Uh, it was the kind of bit of a genius really. He he was the, the, the forefather of the place. Had a great talent for kind of gathering around him these amazing individuals to to kind of tasked with this again this job of, of saving Ireland's folklore, but. He said that um, in an interview I heard with him once that he felt as though the old house was on fire <sighs> and that he wanted to basically what he wanted to do was to save some of the furniture as much as he could. So there's a sense of kind of real urgency about the establishment of this place and the work that it had to do was trying to save as much as it could be done um, in in the midst of it being eroded. Basically, this is this is the view. So so the National Folklore Collection today. It contains all of the material that was amassed and that continues to be amassed that relates to, to Irish folk tradition 
so people often would think that that relates largely to kind of to just to stories and that kind of narrative for oral literature, but it's it's a lot broader than that. Really, it's kind of from um, storytelling is certainly a part of it. So there'll be kind of folk tales and proverbs and charms and so on and so forth. But then also aspects of material culture were collected, house types, uh, crafts, clothing, trades, occupations. Um, uh, I mean, even customs and beliefs relating to how the passage of time was observed or understandings with the natural world, popular customs and beliefs, the whole kind of spectrum of human existence viewed from the perspective of tradition, basically. And that's, um, yeah, that's where I work. So it's, I would say that it is probably the most amazing job ever. Yeah, I love it. So how did you wind up working there then? Well, I started, I studied in the university in UCD. So I did a, a degree in philosophy and then figured that I wasn't quite obsolete enough. So decided to do more studies in, in folk tradition. Um, I became interested in folklore towards the end of that degree. Particularly, I became interested in in, um, in in ballads. Not so much even the singing of ballads, but of kind of, I found uh, at the time when I got interested in them, I found the child ballads and, and child's books. And so he was tasked with kind of collecting ballads in Ireland and in Scotland and so on. And I just saw this, this strange kind of, you know, lists of motifs and variants and versions. And I was like, what's, what's this whole kind of, what is this whole world? Most strange stories. And, and that kind of got a hook in me. And I began to kind of, I suppose I began to develop an interest in aspects of tradition that had been, by which I had been surrounded since I was young, but hadn't really paid um, any kind of focused attention to. And so starting with that interest in the likes of the child ballads and so on, mm-hmm. and then learning about the folklore collection and going there. I did postgraduate studies there. But as soon as I entered into that place, really, it was just um, uh, life-changing, I would say. A totally mind-blowing thing to enter into, really. And just to see this whole kind of spectrum of belief and custom and practice. And, and uh, yeah, totally overwhelming. So I, I basically, I went, I went to study there. And then having studied there, began to work there and um, haven't been able to escape since. Do you want to escape, though? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I would, I would uh, yeah, happily dedicate my life to that place. Yeah, it's just... It's um, the body of work that's been collected and the spirit in which has been collected is just priceless. It's just priceless. Um, it's an incredible, incredible. It's just a priceless resource. It's a, where the kind of the cultural memory of a people is is housed, you know, uh, and it's a living force. And so the more that that can, be, that can be done to kind of to bring that into the public perspective, and not just in Ireland, but you know, further afield, uh, the better in, in my mind. So. So it's worth visiting. You're saying. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're gonna you fall down the rabbit hole there. You know, if you have a kind of a research topic or something like that, there's there's always generally the kind of the warning I would you know offer to, to visiting research, researchers is to generally be as specific as they can with the topic because before you know it, there's just a variety of different angles that often will, will manifest on, on, a, on an area of interest or research, and um, it's always a case of editing out, um, or in most cases at least, you know, as opposed to to, to to trying to kind of edit in more material. There's just yeah. so much material there and still so much to be done as well, you know, which is surprising. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what, what remains to be done? Are you involved in that? I suppose and even different types of, of studies of um, different aspects of folk tradition. But I suppose in the context of the, of the kind of contemporary period there, there's still lots of collections will be will be carried out, not to the same extent as they would have been by the Folklore Commission, but still say staff and even students as well would be involved in fieldwork or in different kind of collections. Yeah, not just preserving these collections and kind of caring for these collections, but also kind of proactively engaging in fieldwork, documenting traditions as they manifest today to see the continuity, basically. Right. And so in your podcast, I've heard you mention fieldwork that you've done or play some of it as well. What, like, how does that come about? Mm. So you're an archivist, right? But you do some field research. I suppose that would be um, a kind of core part. I guess the job is kind of split. It's not a kind of a typically... Um, 
I mean, there are so many different fronts really that we'd be working with. Yeah, part of it is kind of preservation and the care of these collections as they manifest in these different formats. So you have old manuscripts, you have wax cylinders, uh, wire recorder recordings, and old tapes, reel-to-reels, acetates, um, microfilms, I mean, old negatives, uh, nitrate negatives, glass plate slides. There's a whole variety of media. Then there's the whole kind of digital world as well, of all that sort of material, the digitization of audio. So there's the, the kind of core archival component to the material, certainly. Um, and then there's kind of the cataloging and researching and access and all that sort of stuff. But part of the, the whole um, modus operandi of the Folklore com- Commission and the Folklore Collection uh, since its earliest phase really has involved itself in the documenting of tradition and the collection of tradition and its analysis. So part and parcel of that would be engaging in ethnographic fieldwork. So qualitative research using questionnaires or direct interviews and, and sitting with people um, and asking them questions on a variety of topics. And then kind of once you do that over a, over a certain area, patterns, motifs, pictures, currents tend to emerge, basically. So that's a kind of a core a part of it as well. And then, of course, there's you know the advocacy on behalf of the place itself and on behalf of uh, these traditions and trying to, to, to educate people about them or to even to inspire people in that regard as well. So it's a multifaceted kind of approach, I would say. It's very dynamic as a place to work. It's, it's I mean, some of the work, um, was a, couple, a couple of years ago, there was a, a kind of collecting project I did in, the inner, in Dublin's inner city in a block of flats and that were kind of, they were being torn down, this, this block of flats. And a very kind of particular community had arisen in this place, which was quite, it had been kind of compared to, in a way, like a rural, isolated rural island community almost, but within the city quite closed off to itself, had its own strong sense of itself, but often wouldn't really, it was viewed as a very dangerous place, say, by many other people in the area. So it was kind of, often people even around the area wouldn't really venture into these blocks of flats. There was one road in and one road out. So it was kind of a closed place in and of itself, but had a huge, fantastic kind of collection of um, of memories and stories and so on that were there. So over a couple of years, as those buildings were being destroyed, an effort was made to go and collect from those individuals and, and document their oral histories, basically, the memories and traditions of their customs of growing up in that place. And that was a fantastic, fantastic process. It was, uh, it was incredible. So there was, um, there's maybe 20 hours worth of recordings now that are kind of, that were conducted with, with members of that community, which was, it was just, yeah, it was incredible. Can you give an example of something that stood out to you from that? One of the strange things that stood out to me was the very, a very active belief in aspects of the supernatural that you wouldn't necessarily think First of all, maybe people mightn't think would exist in, in modernity, but also would often assume to be a more rural kind of phenomenon. So as regards the Banshee, if you're familiar with the idea of the, the Banshee, the kind of supernatural death harbinger in Irish tradition, this kind of wailing female spirit who, who cries and, and mourns uh, and is heard wailing before a death, in, often in a noble family. But there's a very active belief in the Banshee to this day. Uh, in parts of the inner city, but in particular in this area, collected quite an amount of um, of narratives relating to the banshee as a death omen from from um, some of the people in the flats. Even there was another, there was a version of a medieval uh, legend, the card players and the devil, um, where the popular version of this legend is there's a group of men playing cards, uh, and one man, often kind of very well dressed in a suit or something, comes in and asks if he can join the game, and he's kind of allowed into to um to play this card game but one of the players drops a card on the ground and as he bends down under the table he sees that this gentleman this guest who's joined them has cloven hooves and so at this point they, they kind of they'll run away terrified and there's some sort of maybe an explosion or something and the devil disappears they realize they've been gambling with the devil basically but there's a version of that they collected from someone in, in the uh, in the flats which was told as um again as all legends are it was told 
you know, in belief. It was like, this is what happened, basically, where somebody had seen, in this case, they'd seen the devil and asked them for the time and they'd ignored them. And when they asked, when they asked them again, they turned around and it appeared somewhere else or something like that. And they, they didn't know what was going on. They looked down and saw the cloven hooves and then this individual disappeared. So that, that motif, basically, which kind of carries on. Um, so aspects of the supernatural, really, um, ritual house look, burying things under uh, under the, the floorboards and stuff in the flats, um, which goes back, I mean, there's particularly ancient ideas about, you know, sacrificing something to the land upon which a house is to be built. So that sort of stuff, you know, popular custom and belief. Oh, yeah. So uh, and you talked about house luck in your podcast already. And I think that it's mm. about time we begin talking about your podcast, because that's how I found you in the first place. And um, yeah. That's that's something very interesting that you do that I hope that I can encourage other people to listen to as well. Oh, delighted. Thanks. You're welcome. Oh, yeah. I, I haven't mentioned maybe that I love your podcast. I really, really enjoy it. <laughs> 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 so uh, it's called Folklore Fragments in English. Yeah. It has an Irish title as well. Yeah. Blurini Beladish is the is the Irish title, which means the same thing. Blurini Beladish. Yeah, that's it. Can you describe what it's about then? Um, it's myself and a friend of mine, Claire, who works with me in the folklore collection. We pick a topic each month. We kind of wind up generally falling down the rabbit hole with each of them, really. They just spin off and off in all these different directions. We take um, some of the old field recordings that we have in the sound archive, often to kind of to supplement some of the material that we're talking about. Um, so we might pick, we've looked before it, um, so you mentioned there, the look of the house. Uh, we had one on wind and storms recently. Um, so we try and pick these kind of topics maybe that even people mightn't commonly kind of associate with folk tradition necessarily, and then to explore them from different angles, look at the origins of some of the customs attached to them and some of the stories that relate to them, and to explore even how some of those motifs and different customs kind of come down to us today uh, in ways that we mightn't be aware of. So even with regards to calendar custom and celebrations and festivals during the year and that sort of stuff, we try to kind of look to the origins of these things and how they vary from place to place, from country to country. And then we often supplement that then with kind of audio recordings and tapes from from the Folklore Commission, from the archive. Um, so it's kind of pretty varied collection um, of stuff, but it's, it's fantastic fun to do. And I think Claire kind of, I couldn't do it without her at all. She, she has a tendency to keep me from veering into endless abstractions, basically she kind of grounds things in that way or whatever. Um, so the two of us, I think, kind of, compliment each other in that regard basically but it's um yeah it's a fantastic pleasure to do it yeah i really enjoy the dynamic between the two of you it's very amusing yeah it's good <laughs> great oh she's a legend she's great oh yeah so aside from what you've spoken about on your podcast and what you do in your daily work what do you specialize in i'd be interested in um in folk custom and belief personally and kind of in particular i suppose what shauna suluan one of the the kind of scholars of the folklore commission was there in the 30s and 40s when our forefathers, what he referred to in writing sometimes as emotional reasoning, um, the kind of symbolic reasoning and that kind of approach to um, the natural world or to items in the world that takes on a very kind of, that looks to item, to aspects of, of meaning from the perspective of, of symbolism, likeness, uh, opposites, fears, the imaginative process, fancy, all that sort of stuff. So, and often then the kind of the, the, the magic that pertains to that, so sympathetic magic and ideas that kind of like effects like or that items that are symbolically connected can act on each other from a, a far away distance and this sort of stuff. And um, so folk custom and belief are an area that I've a particular interest in, I think. Um, and that kind of 
the way of looking at the world that they present, which is a particularly old one, I think, and one that in many ways is um, is absent in modernity, I would say. Oh, deeply unpopular, yeah. You yeah, totally, yeah. So, so you have yeah. the, kind of the, the the opposite kind of doctrine in today, where um, everything is viewed in in many ways from a kind of materialist uh, rationalism or whatever. Um, and in the context of tradition, that's that's not the case, and that resonates with me. I think kind of bid farewell to reason as much as one can, anyway. Um, so that'd be something that, that interests me in a broad sense. More specifically, um, ideas around landscape and the supernatural or the supernatural landscape are of particular interest as well. Questions around having Irish tradition, the idea of the stray sod or um, of being sent astray in the natural landscape often at night by supernatural forces or just by kind of these strange, bewildering disorder of, um, you know, entering into a certain patch of ground that has kind of a certain magic power to it at, only at night often and that a person is bewildered or has these kind of another world journey or whatever so questions relating to the other world and popular belief would be of particular interest to me i wonder if you can for me and my listeners define the other world because that's a particularly mm. it's a specific term for i think that it's not always sufficiently yeah uh explained yeah i often take these things for granted and i, I suppose the other world in Irish tradition often, I suppose, would manifest as, I guess there's there's the idea that you have, you know, the the, the world of normal experience, the world of, of kind of uh, the world as we know it, for, for want of a better word, and then kind of meshed within that or living alongside that or parallel to that is, is the other world, basically, which is kind of, it's not some far away places and a person dies and goes to heaven, which is over there somewhere. It's, it's meshed into, into often the natural world around us often. Um, and so the other world experience maybe you could characterize as a sudden flash of the fantastic and the bizarre into what was hitherto a very ordinary moment. So um, a woman walking across a hill on a certain journey and she takes a shortcut over a field and suddenly she finds herself in very strange surroundings or meets strange people or has some sort of uh, venture or whatever and then is often returned back. So there's this idea of kind of, you know, there and back again to the to the, the other world journey. Or, um, I suppose this is all entirely kind of feels quite vague and describing it at the moment. But Well, I'm thinking it reminds me of a lot of Norwegian and Icelandic ballads of um, people encountering, you know, elves in the mountains or, you know. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. I guess, I mean, if you look at, um, say, the, the Irish language word for, for the fairies uh, is Nadina Shi or Nslua Shi, and which translates really as um, uh, the other world host or other world crowd <coughs> excuse me i mean even that term the banshee uh, the, the this kind of death harbinger is like the um the other world woman yeah. so this word of she uh, has been related to, to kind of the idea of the other world in the irish language but in the in the original form of the early irish the word she s-i-d-h-g meant um, a mound or a tumulus or an earthwork kind of hill or a burial mound yeah. and so the fairies really have been kind of rooted in the natural landscape even, you know, etymologically almost, they're conceived of and often bound up with the dead and rooted in the natural landscape and live in these cairns or live in these burial mounds or live under rocks or in lakes or in trees or in lonely places in the countryside, you know, off the road, off the ordered space of, of the, the road or the town, but into the, the disordered, uh, boundless kind of landscape of, of the natural world and unmediated nature or whatever. That's often where uh, these supernatural or other world forces or this community, that's, that's mm -hmm. where they live. Um, so you have, I guess, a kind of um, an attempt maybe to to kind of give boundary to that which is boundless almost and to try and explain it through narrative or something like that in a certain context so that it often existed as you do that the fairies um, live alongside us 
and that they they pass by us all the time. They can they can hear us, so you have to call them off from the good people or the the gentry, so you don't displease them. Um, if you're throwing dirty water out of your house at night, you have to give a warning before you do it in case you throw it on them. Right? You, if you're building a new outhouse or building a house, you have to be careful that they don't live in that place or they don't use it as a road. So you have to navigate the world according to kind of physical and metaphysical rules that are based on um, that have enchantment at, at their core and a very supernatural view of, of the world, which again, in, in the modern context, I think is uh, is absent or is often promoted as, as such uh, to our detriment, mm-hmm. I would say. And I really appreciate how it's like really specific pockets or places that are, that are ascribed that meaning. Like I, um, I'm really interested in the idea of springs and wells as openings into yeah. the other world or bodies of water. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I don't know where that, interest came from but i mean so, so many of these things are kind of um i think they're so deep even symbolically that it's hard to give a kind of rationalized expression as to even where our personal interest in them might come from I mean, the, the idea that you know the, the water that comes from 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 the earth you know or life-giving water is bursting out of yeah. the deep you know it's kind of um it's unfathomable really in a way and even and even in a in a more practical sense even the idea of the the, the worship at these places since mm-hmm. since time immemorial is, is just it's it's something of huge antiquity and then the artistry and the kind of uh, the tradition that builds up around that is something that is full of meaning and profoundly uh, beautiful I'd say as well yeah um and necessary yeah. like I feel like totally. I, mean, I grew up in an even more remote place than this and I was by myself in the mountains and in the, yeah and I uh yeah like everything was animated to me as a kid and that was for me that's what that's what that sort of belief in the non-material um, reality is is uh what keeps me in the material reality at all, I think. Yeah, yeah, we need that, I think, and it's it's not it's disprivileged as a um, a space, you know, mental or otherwise. I think in, in the modern context, in many ways, um, but there's a huge amount of, of lore and belief and custom since the earliest phases that go back to the most primitive aspects of of uh, of, of our existence, or whatever. Like, I don't know if you, if you can even call these things ideas. I don't know what's deeper than that. They're just born out of nature. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, I suppose, you know, when when you, I think there's a natural, these things resonate with people, uh, even if they don't know that something's missing, when, when they come into contact with these aspects of these beliefs and customs, it, it resonates, you know, it can't not, um, mm-hmm. which is, yes, I mean, I think folk tradition and folklore and these things can often be thought of as a bit twee and so on and so forth, but I would disagree and I think that they're, they're very central to, to kind of root us in the place that we're from and um you know physically and and uh i don't know metaphysically or whatever yeah mm. agreed <laughs> <laughs> agreed excellent uh, metaphysics are not terribly popular i gotta say um no no not a good look <laughs> yeah it's terrible it's a bad word actually um it is yeah one of many i wonder if ireland because i mean i was i grew up catholic in in uh, mm. weirdly um remote not orthodox kind of way because we were way out we just had basically like missionaries visiting mm. but i didn't really understand that that um catholicism was very strict growing up i thought it was a very like um wishy-washy almost wiccan kind of um religion and i wonder though like it's known for it's known for that i mean for being yeah a little more um i don't want to say superstitious but that's the reputation yes yeah and i wonder if that's like had an influence on how ireland is has taken up folklore into the the modern era. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I mean, one of the things certainly that um, that 
I mean, I would have grown up Catholic as well. Um, and then I guess would have lost a kind of an active sense of taking part in that tradition in a meaningful way, really. But at least in a formal context, but something that does move me, usually I'd say, is the, the apocryphal religious practices uh, that express themselves in folk traditions. So like the visiting of Holy Wells that's done in honor of a saint on a certain feast day, that isn't necessarily kind of um, advocated often by the formal church or is often in, in direct opposition to the dictates of the of the you know canonical church law or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the people in a certain place uh, will go there and will honor the saint at a certain time and will go to the well and make rounds there. And it's part of a kind of communal process. And then even the saint themselves, probably um, some version of, of an older pre-Christian or pagan deity that they've taken over the role. And so those kind of waters are still running through these other figures in that kind of sense. Um, but again, I mean, that's quite, uh, could be taken as kind of wishy-washy in its own sense as well. But I think it could be maybe even, there's that aspect of Catholicism, but also there's the fact that there was never an industrial revolution maybe in, in Ireland as well, and there was no Roman invasion, and they were kind of at the periphery of, of Northwestern Europe in a sense. So, so that certain kind of, maybe expressions that were found all over Europe as, as far as part of the broader kind of folk tradition, they, they didn't dry up here, as it were, um, like they had in, in other countries around Europe. So you had lots of Swedish and German scholars in particular in the early 20th century who were very interested in Norwegians um, in, in Irish folk tradition because they felt that they couldn't understand Europe if they didn't understand uh, Ireland, basically. that you know, I mean, even the Handbook of Irish Folklore, this, this fantastic book, uh, 1942, was published. James Largy writes in the preface of that that um, uh, it's a kind of encyclopedia, not just of Irish custom, but of, of, of European, kind of Northwestern European tradition as well. That this, these traditions relate to a broader tapestry, not just to, to the, the specific place. But so it could be maybe that mixture of, of isolation and the influence of, of uh, Catholicism and maybe the lack of a Roman invasion and these other kind of things that maybe allowed some of these practices to carry on. I don't know. I don't have a, a neat answer really, but. That was a great answer, I think. <laughs> Sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, speaking of, of resources, so you, was that the fellow who um, coined the term migratory legends? Is that is that who you're talking about? Sean Asulwan. He, he he wrote um, the book with uh, Rydar Christiansen on Irish migratory legends. Yeah. Um, Sean Asulwan is, is one of my, he's just so inspiring. He's amazing. I mean, all these figures take on this kind of incredibly inspiring hue, really, you know, <laughs> uh, Delargy and Asulwan and all them. It's, it's incredible. But um yeah, Sean O'Sullivan wrote the Handbook of Irish Folklore. Mm-hmm. There were a thousand copies published in 1942. It's like 699 pages of questions, but it's an encyclopedia in and of itself. All of the questions he asks on the most minute aspects of folk tradition are rooted in tradition itself. So you can learn a lot about a topic just by reading the, the questions on this particular section. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's a section on, on the natural world and the solar systems and the heavens the, down to details like rocks in your local area. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, quest- questions for folklore collectors to ask on uh, on rocks. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's wildly um, uh, detailed in that sense. folklore i think nothing really can compare to the kind of the distillation of countless generations of artistry and wisdom that finds expression in in uh, 
in folk tradition. Nothing, nothing compared to it for a sense of, of rooting you in, in place physically and and temporally as well. And think to, to kind of have that sense of connection to your forebears, your ancestors, the place from where you come in a local sense, in a, in a broader sense, in a national sense, in an international sense, in the context of broader European kind of custom and tradition. It's just a tapestry of these kind of golden threads that are, are woven together that uh, that nothing else can kind of quite come near the knowledge and wisdom that's, that's presented there. It's like a kind of a communal space um, where an individual can find expression, but with reference to these communal patterns, you know, and um, that has a huge power, I think. And I think in many ways as well, the reason it, it resonates so so much for me is because it's often in direct antithesis to uh, that by which I'm surrounded in, in modernity often. I guess tradition is akin to a kind of an anchor or truth, you know, and um, yeah, in the modern age, it's kind of the antithesis. We live in an anti-traditional age where a lot of these things are actively disprivileged or viewed as old wives tales or just kind of silly, stupid stories of an ignorant, you know, uh, massive people or whatever. Uh, but the, the direct inverse opposite, I would say, is, is the case. So um, I think, yeah, modernity demands or, or kind of aspects of tradition really can act as an antidote to many of the ills of the modern age, I would say. Oh, totally. But it's actually incredible. I was like, I just, on the way here today, I had a memory, a flashback to when I was in the seventh grade, when I was 12, and I, and they told us in our computer class where we were playing, like, Oregon Trail on these, like, old, you know, where the screen was black and there was green numbers. and You have to, you have to pedal and, and fill the computer <laughs> yeah. with logs and coal. Yeah. And, uh, and they told us that at some point you'd be able to call somebody and see their face on the screen um, at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I was, my mind was blown. Crazy. It is crazy. You know, and I, I thought that'll, yeah. you know, that'll happen someday. Maybe it was like the one of the, you know, the most shining examples of the future that I could think of. Totally. Aside from going back in time. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, my father bringing home, you know, this giant kind of two-tone PC um, and saying like, Oh, one day everyone will have one of these in their house. And I was like, what? that's insane. That's so, totally crazy. And do you remember as well, another kind of telling thing, I think, is that even when we would have been grown up, you had, we used to watch uh, and loved shows like um, Tomorrow's World in the year 2000, where you had almost this kind of nostalgia for what the future, the vision of the future would be, you know? And that seems to be gone now as well. You don't have that kind of, I don't know, it, that, that kind of um, view of, yeah, the future seems to have kind of disappeared as a, as a hopeful time. I remember growing up that oh, like, yeah. oh yeah, you know, oh in the future it's all going to be kind of better. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but it's um, there's that strange nostalgia for the future now. I think in the sense of looking back to kind of 1980s kind of computer video game world from your childhood, where the future was this kind of uh, some sort of pleasant dream to work towards. But that's I don't know. I think I'm an optimist. I don't really know, am I? An optimist, but for the future, I, don't know, I, f I feel um, horribly worried. I, I see everything just being kind of eroded and, and increasingly kind of meaninglessness in many ways, and um, kind of everything just just uh, eroding into this kind of atomized, meaningless voidment in many ways. Yeah, I don't know. It's probably too excessive a, a view to take, but maybe not everything, but. I think just the, the pace and kind of scale of, you know, uh, super modernity or hyper modernity, whatever, is just unfathomable. Like, I don't even know what it means. It's just, it's, um, it's crazy. We've never been in, in this, at this juncture, I don't think, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, um, 
I don't know. It's all to play for, I guess. That's true. It's hard when you call yourself an optimist, though. Isn't that funny? Yeah, I, th- I think maybe I could be talking. I think I am an optimist overall, yeah. but um, but um, definitely an idealist or kind of prone to romanticism of all sorts. But but yeah, I I feel pretty pretty worried for the future. I would say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <On that note>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that cheery note. Um, what's uh, what's making you happy right now? Uh, well, this is very pleasant. Yeah. Um, certainly, yeah, work in the archive and things going on there are exciting and good. And the the response, I suppose, from from people coming in and engaging with these things and aspects of tradition, or that's very exciting. Small amount of people say the small but dedicated fan base, quote unquote, and the huge amount of work that can be done. That's very inspiring, and um, I get a lot of pleasure and inspiration from that. From seeing, again, just you know, you, n- you never know the difference that that you can make. One person can make it in, in a way, yeah. And that's um, yeah, I see that a lot even in, in where I work. Mm-hmm. So that's that's something that's particularly inspiring. I agree. I, I yeah, having the podcast has really shown me like how how much people really want to hear about folklore. Like they're they're thirsty. They're yeah. like dying. Totally. For- for totally. something you know real just, something real yeah yeah they're totally like yeah. and so i'm trying to do the best i can that <laughs> oh you are you're there it's, it's great it's fantastic but i think pe- people are really really um in so many ways i mean in, in so many ways there's so much distrust with all of the, the kind of um the traditional institutions and pillars that, that kind of held up the framework of our that, that made the doctrine of our own culture or whatever there's so much distrust and rightly so in, in so many of those structures be they political uh, religious, economical, um, personal, yeah. everything's just kind of crumbling apart in so many ways. But when you go to tradition, you go to the the the, uh, the undiluted, triple distilled wisdom of your own forebears. There's no, that is just the truth, you know, that it, as it manifests, you know, any symbolic sense at least. Mm-hmm. Again, it's that symbolic kind of truth, whatever. And um, and people are crying out for that. People are thirsty for that. They're thirsty for something real. There's, the, you know. Life isn't really about shopping and, and football and uh, and these kind of inane, consumptive kind of processes. Really? Where cu- Life isn't about football? <laughs> ah, no, I'm sorry. To, but like, even, you know, where culture is just kind of, uh, it's just entertainment, you know, um, or this kind of throwaway, uh, these kind of empty processes, whatever. And when you show these things to themselves, it's like showing someone to themselves, basically. It's just showing... Um, a person who they are it just it just resonates it can't not you know if you're tuning up a guitar and you play like a e string or something and the b string will just resonate it, it, it just without even being touched it just it, it can't not do that you know <laughs> so um, i think in today's age where so many things are kind of so you know plastic for want of a better word um aspects of folk tradition point to something deep inside people that answers something mm-hmm. yeah something real i think there's this sort of twinned problem that's going on here, though, is that the symbolic and emotional thinking is um, also the root of a lot of the problems that we're having. So I think it's ever more important to understand how it works so that you're using it for good and not evil. Do you know what I mean? Like yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very influential people who would style themselves as experts or authorities and, and just say something that sounds compelling and, and, you know, and narratively rich or poetic or something, and it's easily easily picked up as truth yeah. and I think that that's where you know the church went wrong and that's where government is currently going wrong and like but at the same time it's yeah it still speaks to a deep need for that kind of understanding of course and I think actually in many ways when, when people are um where they have knowledge of, of their own traditions they become fodder for, for those sorts of um processes or ideas they don't they're not rooted so you're more easily 
um, swept to and fro by the the rhetoric of someone who doesn't have your best interest at heart, or it's just a kind of empty uh, rhetorician or whatever, kind of some you know academic hollering on about this or that or whatever in a, in an echo chamber. So there's this whole process that if you're kind of yeah, people can be kind of more um, easily led by these processes now. I suppose and it is a part of the danger of these whole these um, yeah these thought processes. How do you navigate them? And, no answer to that at all. And <laughs> <laughs> no more so than in North America, perhaps, where it's actually very different than, or maybe not in certain areas of Europe, but like we have um, this extremely modern culture of the settlers, and then we have indigenous cultures here that mm. are um, that are doing their own work to reclaim their traditions. But it's not; um, they're not integrated, and I don't know if they can be. Or, or should even you? Know, how, how do you do you do you erode these things entirely, or what's you know? There's no easy answer to yeah. this. Yeah, it's it's really it's rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. there's, I mean, there's some fascinating ethnography going on here, and people doing work in their own communities and stuff. But most of the indigenous languages here are about to go, um, and mm. the and the aesthetic traditions and the material culture are are very prone to like appropriation by, uh, you know, uh, white folks looking for something to to feel real about you know i think in many ways yeah i think it's the, the emptiness of modern experience sometimes finds expression in this kind of cherry picking um from multitudes of kind of um of, of different expressions of tradition about which an individual has actually no interest or actual knowledge like it's just again it's a kind of part of a, a consumptive um process where you just you know you consume culture for the purposes of entertainment as opposed to uh, learning about your own, for example, yeah. you know, and um, yeah, we live in strange, strange days indeed. Well, I think a lot about the um, the genetic tests that everyone is doing um, to determine their ancestry. Mm. And yeah, it's it's tricky because it's such a I don't know. It's just really complex because if you base your your sense of tradition on only your genetic materials, you're also in trouble. You become way too materialist and. You lose the metaphysical aspects, I think, of that. Yeah, that, that's an interesting component is the kind of the materialism of, um, of biology or of race in that sense. But then again, I mean, th that, that sense of, of um, trying to kind of tie into, I guess, your own past in that kind of sense of like, where do you come from? Who, who are, who am I? Who are you? You know, I can understand that, um, that kind of that yearn or that questioning kind of process or whatever. Uh, particularly in an age where so much has just been eroded and kind of people don't have that clear sense. They don't have a sense of who they are. So then sometimes, you know, they'll cling to, to anything that they can get. You know, that people are looking for an anchor in when so many of these things have been taken away. You don't have these or to the same extent, these kind of coherent um, social groupings and bonds and expressions of tradition. And now, now it's like it has to be chosen. You have to choose tradition. You have to choose to kind of opt into it or something like that. Which is a difficult and strange kind of process, and I, I mean, I even have plenty of friends of mine who have, you know, a huge interest in, in aspects of literature and music and so on. But they feel a certain reticence in kind of claiming quote unquote uh, expressions of Irish tradition that it doesn't belong to them in some way, or that they don't have a right to it almost, that they can't quite um, uh, just kind of cleanly and unselfconsciously just identify with it. Whatever. And that's that's difficult for people that kind of. So then, where where do you go and what what do you do? You know, you, you watch um, American TV shows or. or you go to a shopping center and, you know, where, what is it? Where, where do you go then? How do you, how do you answer that kind of deeper meaning of who you are? Mm -hmm. Which again, goes back to, I think, a lot of the times of when, even if people aren't fully aware of what it is that they don't know or are missing, 
when you reveal it to them, when you show it to them, when they hear it, when they hear the songs, when they hear the stories, when they hear the voices that spoke them, when they see the faces that that that, that, uh, that told them and that, and that listened and so on and so forth. Um, something, it's it's something so deep that it, 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 I can't even say, I can't even point to it or, or say what it is. Yeah, and people just feel that it's something real in a, in a which is very rare nowadays. No, it's it's all, it's one of my favorite things to kind of go on about, really. Of um, yeah, the details of, of folk custom and folk tradition, but you know how it's manifesting in the modern world. I mean, even the heads in the 18th century, in the 19th century in Europe, the Brothers Grimm and so on, when they were collecting, it was often it was from the same sense of crisis of, of fraternity of the industrial revolution and kind of yeah. um, you know everything's being swept away. And so, um, what the hell are we going to do? Well, we're going to try and gather as many versions of it as we can to try and get back to the root. I mean, even this idea that the Grimm's had of if you collect variants and versions of folk tales, that it'll send you back to the kind of the Ur type, you know, and and that'll kind of trace yeah. back to this origin. It's the same sense of like you want to yeah. find the, the root. Where are we? Who are we? And how do we trace these these disparate kind of pieces together to find meaning? Really, I think it's a search for meaning, and that again is is one of the most um, important things to search for but it's something that's that's so absent from so many expressions in in, in the modern age uh, meaning and it's something by which i'm quite obsessed i would say the topic mm-hmm. of meaning and um and folk tradition answers a lot of that but the problem is when is the the authentic like where is it located in time and space well <clears throat> i think even this question of kind of, of authenticity is an interesting one as well yeah yeah and i think it's one that relates again to uh even you know the sense of consumerism or kind of nostalgia manifesting as this kind of capitalist um, or late capitalist kind of consumptive world. It's like, oh, we need, there's a market for nostalgia. You know, it's a good dollar, the, you know, the nostalgia world, even if it's nostalgia for the future or here, have an authentic cultural experience. You know, you're just going to be, you're going to sprinkle some hay on the floor and sit by a fire. And, uh, and this is, an, I'm having an authentic experience. You know, what's this question of authenticity is a strange one that points to often, I think, the, the kind of, um, uh, it's opposite in many ways. You know, people are concerned about uh, authenticity and, and looking for it or whatever. But I don't know. I don't, I don't know that there is necessarily a kind of a, a time and, and place. But I think that even sometimes if you kind of, I don't know, reorient yourself according to some of the values of tradition in some way that you don't need to go back in, in time necessarily and turn off your computer per se, but that that might be an antidote to some at least of the ills that we find in the, the modern age.
That was my conversation with Johnny Dillon, who works at the National Folklore Collection at University College Dublin and produces the Folklore Fragments podcast out of the archive there. You can find a link to that podcast in the show notes. The opening theme for Fair Folk is Forest March by Sylvia Woods, and I would like to thank Fiacra O'Regan for providing the rest of the music for this episode. If you have questions or suggestions for the podcast, you can email me at fairfolkcast at gmail.com or find Fair Folk's page on Facebook. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to talking to you again next month. <laughs>